with less than two weeks to go before the New South Wales state election and a little more than two months to go before the federal election, there's no question that the mainstream Conservative parties are splintering. Indeed, in 2016, nearly a million Conservatives refused to vote for Malcolm Turnbull's coalition. And it's fair to say in 2019, many Conservatives are unlikely to vote for the state and federal Liberal governments and park their votes instead with the minor parties on the right, most notably One Nation, the Liberal Democrats and the Australian Conservatives. One of the major battlegrounds in this state election on March 23 is the battle for the upper house. And after March 23, it's fair to say that centre-right minor parties are likely to hold the balance of power. So, as the coalition shows increasing signs of splintering, what is the objective of the, major, of the minor parties? Specifically One Nation, the Liberal Democrats, and the Australian Conservatives. Who best represents the path to a sound governing and legislative agenda in the state and federal levels? Now I'll introduce each speaker at a time. Uh, they'll speak for five to seven minutes. The bell will go off at the six minute mark. And then after each of the speakers concludes their remarks, uh, my, my friend and colleague, the Daily Telegraph columnist Miranda Devine will host a conversation and then after that conversation, she'll open it up to questions from you, the audience. So let's get started. The first speaker, he's a former federal Labor leader, and he is the One Nation candidate for the New South Wales Upper House. Please welcome Mark Latham. Uh, thanks very much, Tom, ladies and gentlemen. Well, why do the minor parties matter in this state election campaign? Uh, they matter because the major parties are putting on the worst campaign in the history of the state. That's why they matter. Uh, the Labor strategists, uh, Chris Neal and Bruce Hawker, have had amazing success in narrowing the debate to one issue where Labor thinks it's got a strategic advantage in the polls, in its internal research, uh, the stadium up the road. Meanwhile, in areas where uh, the public have major concerns about the failure of public policy, the major parties agree. So we've narrowed this down to a one-issue, single-issue state election campaign and all the areas where policy is failing and the major parties have been in agreement, uh, neglected, unless you listen to the minor parties. We are the voice of disruption. We are the voice of discord. We are the voice of saying there's a lot of things beyond the stadium that matter to the people of New South Wales, policy failures that need to be corrected. And let me just give five of them. The first is the dysfunctionality in Sydney, the congestion, the overdevelopment, the overpopulation. Uh, Sydney's growing by 100,000 people a year. I found out yesterday's a hun uh, 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 sorry 100,000 people a year, and I found out yesterday's 100,000 new vehicles registered on Sydney roads per annum. So no government can keep up with that level of growth, building the roads, the car parks, the uh, train lines, the um, services. And when the parties announce extra funding, of course there's extra funding for every service under the sun because of the vast number of people moving into Sydney and they're trying to keep up with this population growth, but it's a futile task. The growth is so big and the overdevelopment so wrong that uh, Sydney-siders are living in an increasingly dysfunctional city. So the obvious thing to do is to cut the national immigration program, which is one nation policy. Immigration's also flooded the labour market, holding down wages. The demand for housing uh, has driven up uh, housing prices and led to the affordability crisis. So the obvious thing to do is to reduce the national immigration rate back 
to its 20th century average, a successful rate of 70,000 a year, it would cut by two thirds the rate of population growth in Sydney, which would make the city much more manageable, get rid of the Greater Sydney Commission, led by Lucy Turnbull, which is a mouthpiece for uh, high immigration and endless population growth in places she doesn't live or, in, or visit, and, and put in place the planning controls the government's had in the municipality of Ryde in other parts of Sydney, which are groaning under the weight of overdevelopment and inadequate infrastructure. A second area is in energy policy. Uh, both parties, in various means, are committed to going down the path of 100% renewable. Michael Daly has a policy to legislate a carbon-free New South Wales economy. Legislate it, turn it into law, no carbon in New South Wales. Well, Don Harwin is not much better. He's the greener than green Liberal Party energy minister who has a policy of um, zero carbon economy as an aspiration, a target by 2050. And of course, zero carbon means closing down the coal industry, closing down aluminium in New South Wales, closing down most of the manufacturing, and I suppose we'll all end up with an electric car. And the consequence of 100% renewables is high-risk stuff for New South Wales, putting all your eggs in the energy basket in one area, renewables. Our policy is diversify the energy base, uh, lift the uranium mining ban in New South Wales, lift the nuclear power ban in New South Wales, re-enable coal to compete on an equal footing when New South Wales ends its state government commitment to the Paris Agreement, uh, it ends its targets and it ends the subsidies for renewables. And the other thing we would do in terms of electricity prices is get rid of the $85 a year New South Wales electricity tax. They collect $300 million a year from the electricity distributors passed on to you, the households, the consumers, the businesses, $85 a year impost on everyone in the state which should be abolished if you're serious about lower electricity prices. You don't hear the major parties talk about that because they've signed up to the religion of renewables, the sun worship of the pagan sun worship of renewables. That's what they've signed up to. And you don't hear them talking about these common sense solutions of diversifying the energy base and getting rid of the $85 a year electricity tax. Education, we'll talk about it later on, I'm sure. But New South Wales schools are going backwards compared to other states and other countries. Now, you might think living in the biggest state in the Commonwealth, we've got the best schools. It's not true. The international benchmarking, the uh, national benchmarking shows our schools are going backwards because of the erosion of the curriculum, which is now full of postmodernist junk, the dropping of standards, grades, testing. Both Labor and Liberal are committed to the abolition of NAPLAN. Uh, they've got a policy waging war on testing and standards and grades. They want to introduce what they call a progression point instead of A to E grade, so uh, students, teachers and families know how the kids are going from year to year. And the other thing, of course, is the rundown in the teaching profession, which is old and getting older and not getting the results. Our policy is to uh, get back to the basics of a sound curriculum, restore testing grades and standards and introduce performance pay for the teaching profession. So the good teachers who get the results measured on an annual basis would get a $50,000 bonus under our policy and the teachers taking classrooms backwards would have to go find a different job. What happens in the public sector, it's the old adage, what gets measured gets done. So measure teacher performance and pay them accordingly. That's the thing to rejuvenate the teaching profession in New South Wales. A fourth area where there's agreement, of course, is the human rights agenda. You would have seen how one of the New South Wales tribunals was uh, razzing up Sonia Kruger because she said she was against uh, any form of Islamic uh, migration into Australia and her free speech was infringed well. The Anti-Discrimination Board in New South Wales is a mouthpiece for the new leftist discrimination in this state, which is against men, boys, Christians, white people, 
Uh, this is the perversion of the human rights agenda where the groups who were classified as minorities in the 70s and 80s have got their human rights protections. We live in a, Australia, a land of equal opportunity, but now they're seeking revenge against the people that they think aggrieved them in the past, men, boys, Christians and white people. We've introduced a policy to wipe out all this new form of leftist discrimination. Any prejudice, any discrimination in society is unacceptable. And finally, the uh, fifth area I'd mentioned is water policy, a crucial issue in the bush. You go out to the Murrumbidgee irrigation area, as I have, and you talk to people, there's three issues, water, water and water. And the major parties, again, they agree that they've got no policy for actually keeping more water in New South Wales. They both subscribe to the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and Michael Daly's got a policy to have a review. He's have a meeting, Michael Daly. Every solution is have a meeting, Michael Daly. So he wants to have a review and a meeting about the... It's urgent work in the bush. As soon as the drought was declared in New South Wales, they should have said there's a trigger in the Murray-Darling plan to keep more of the water here in New South Wales, allow the farmers to build their uh, dams on their own properties in the restoration of their property rights. Instead, they flush the water down the mouth of the Murray River because of marginal seat major party politics. I can oh, tell you it's all about South Australia. The major parties are failing. The minor parties are the voice of reason and policy solutions. Please back us. Mark, Mark thank you. Our next speaker is uh, the leader of the Liberal Democrats and he's the LDP candidate for the State Upper House. Please welcome David Lionhelm. Thank you, Tom. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Anthony Green is good at analysing election results, but he's absolutely terrible at predicting election results, outcomes. He's always wrong. But there's one prediction that even he couldn't get wrong. After the state election in March, and also after the federal election in May, minor parties will have the balance of power in the upper houses of both the state and the federal parliaments. It's a 100% certainty. Support for minor parties has been on the rise since 2010. Some people vote for minor parties in both lower and upper houses. Some people vote for one of the major parties in the lower house, which determines the government, and then vote for a minor party in the upper house, and probably more do that. That's a good thing. So I have two take-home messages from today. First, my advice to you would be vote for each of the minor parties you like before you vote for a major party before, not after. And the second message is vote one for the Liberal Democrats, but don't stop at one, keep numbering. If you do that, your vote is sure to count and we will get a better democracy. So what's wrong with the major parties and why don't they deserve your support? If you are like me and you believe in low taxes, a balanced budget and an end to wasteful spending, you will have been disappointed with the major parties over the, the Liberal National Party, uh, Government in particular over the last five years. They reduced personal income tax, but that's where it ended. They imposed GST on low-value imports, which will cost more to collect than it raises. They increased superannuation taxes, imposed the major bank levy, the diverted profits tax. Tobacco excise went up enormously. Passenger movement charge was increased and reintroduced, and they reintroduced the fuel tax indexation. All of those are tax increases. There's also a range of national security bills, all of which made us um, less free and no more safe. They allowed snoops to access our metadata and they passed a law that requires software companies to allow access to encrypted messages. And Labor 
supported all of those apart from the, the personal tax cuts. And now Labor's said they want to increase the tax on individuals and businesses and a range of, a range of proposals costing $50 billion a year. So what we have is a government that increased a multitude of taxes and an opposition that supported these increases but also wants to increase a multitude of other taxes. So limiting your choices to Liberal or Labor is like being in a cannibal's cooking pot and having a choice between being cooked quickly or slowly. For minor parties, some are obviously better than others. I don't suggest you vote for the Socialist Alliance, although they take votes off the Greens, so perhaps I should. <laughs> but let me tell you about the Liberal Democrats. We are the party of small government. Low taxes, reduced spending, balanced budget, no nanny state, no red tape, no green tape. When I was elected to the Senate, I said I'd never vote for an increase in taxes or a reduction in liberty. That will also be my policy if I'm elected to the state parliament. I have fought long and hard to reduce taxes, to cut spending, to get rid of middle class welfare. I had a little bit of success. Um, I stopped uh, childcare subsidies going to uh, households earning more than $350,000, for example. I opposed each and every one of the national security bills that came up, not because I don't care about national security, but because they weren't necessary. And I was proved right. The government agreed later to, to remove some restric restrictions on the media and some provisions have never been used. I got the government to unwind a law that would put farmers at risk of union harassment and there are many other examples. Now state election issues are different but the principles are the same. We are taxed too much, we spend too much and bit by bit we are losing our liberty. On taxes, think about stamp duty and payroll tax. Stamp duty jacks up the cost of buying a house. It discourages homeowners from moving to be closer to work or when their family situation changes. And payroll tax is like punishment for giving people a job. On spending, think about the current spendathon. It's so bad, even the papers have commented on it. On liberty, think about mandatory bicycle helmets. Other countries don't have that. Lockouts, Melbourne doesn't have that. Vaping or e-cigarettes, many other countries encourage them because they save lives. We ban them. Then there's infrastructure. Sydney is nowhere near the biggest or most densely populated city in the world, and yet it feels congested. Australia needs more people. But because state governments neglect infrastructure, we feel as if we can't cope with them. We need trains, buses, bridges, tunnels, freeways, and other things to help us get around. We need parking at train stations and bus stops. We need to make it attractive for motorbikes and scooters. All of them are state issues. We also need immigration policies that encourage immigrants to live where they are wanted. And there are plenty of places in Australia where they are wanted. And that they are employable when they get there. But for the Liberal Democrats, immigration is about quality, not quantity. But I do emphasise that is a federal issue, not a state issue. Now, not everything uh, that minor parties do is good. The company tax cuts failed because of opposition from the minor parties, including One Nation and Centre Alliance. Uh, that's former Nick Xenophon party. But if Labor had been in government, we wouldn't have got them anyway. But if what, if what you want is to get the government off your back and out of your pocket, you are not going to get that by voting for the major parties. 
They are a lost cause. Thank you. David, thank you. Our next speaker is the Australian Conservative candidate for the State Upper House. Please welcome Greg Walsh. Thank you. So what I wanted to talk about were some of the key reasons why the Conservatives was established, why we've attracted so many people throughout Australia and why we have so many people who are supporting us and hopefully will be voting for us in the upcoming New South Wales and federal elections. So one of the key issues that people constantly mention at the functions that we have is that of community safety. Like many of you in the room, you would have grown up, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, some of you that kind of decades before, a few decades before, and the idea that we would have had a terrorism threat in Australia was literally unthinkable at that time. But now, two, three decades later, it's become an established feature of Australian life. And that is an indescribable tragedy, what has happened to our country. And the major political parties aren't discussing it enough. They're not discussing it honestly enough. And in contrast to that, we have the leader of the Conservatives, Cory Bernardi, who has been very upfront in discussing the nature of these threats and has been proposing a range of remedies to address this problem from being clear about the halal tax on our food and trying to work out where the funds are going on this issue, dealing with the difficulties involved in the burqa and having the burqa in public and the kind of threat that poses and the cultural threat and how it undermines our social cohesion to allow this kind of clothing. So Cory Bernardi and many others in the party have been very upfront in discussing the nature of this threat and the need for us to take more assertive action to address this problem and to ensure that it doesn't get worse. Another key issue which the Conservatives have been discussing in detail is that of energy prices. So as many of you will know that Labor and Liberal have committed to adopting strategies to address climate change that will be very harmful to our economy. You would have read this week that uh, there was a report by BA Economics which was addressing the cost that will be incurred by Australia for having these kind of measures. So the coalition's approach will cost $70 billion over the next 10 years. Labor's approach will be even more expensive than that. This is a massive cost to Australia and it's not often discussed that uh, this will be a, su a substantial economic burden on Australia. This in the context of our chief science scientist, Alan Finkel, making it clear that Australia uh, accounts for about 1.3% of global emissions. And even if Australia reduced those emissions to 0%, it would have no appreciable effect on climate change. That should be the key central element that guides us in determining what steps we should take in addressing this problem, that whatever Australia does, it will have no impact on, glo on, on global warming, and so we should take that into account in deciding how we should address this problem. There also should be a further focus on the possibility of a technological fix to this issue. Some of you would have read this week that Australian scientists had a breakthrough in making it easier to convert carbon dioxide into coal. There's a real possibility that a technological breakthrough could prove an effective solution to this problem and more funding should be dedicated to the scientists who are investigating this issue. We have major problems with religious liberty. So this arises in a range of areas, so in regards to religious schools and religious universities. There are moves underway to modify anti-discrimination legislation 
that will profoundly undermine the ability of religious schools, religious universities, and the change that was being, being introduced last December would also have affected religious organisations engaged in education, which would have meant organisations at, 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 uh, at churches, at, at mosques, at temples, could have been adversely affected by these laws. And that was a change that was supported by Labor, Liberal, Nationals and Greens. It only just didn't come through because they disagreed about some minor issues. So that's a massive threat to everyone. Religious liberty isn't just for Christians, isn't just for Muslims. At the basis, it is allowing us to reach a conclusion about the most profoundly important questions that we face as human beings and to conduct our lives according to the answers that we reach. We also have concerns in regards to freedom of speech. So many of you will know that this, uh, raise, this is an issue that arises in a range of areas. But one of the key challenges at the 18C in New South Wales, the 20C of the Anti-Discrimination Act, which penalises individuals essentially for making statements that a government official considers to be offensive. We saw this most dramatically recently in Sonia Kruger's case, where in the context of the Nice atrocities by the man who, drove, who ran over so many people in Nice, she made comments that Muslim immigration should be stopped. It wasn't exactly clear what she was saying because it was a very short television segment. A man made a complaint under 20C of the Anti-Discrimination Act and as a consequence of that, it was a two years around that time investigation into what she was saying. It went to a conciliation, it went to a tribunal. Ultimately, it was held that she had not violated the Act. But if you look at the case, it actually the actual tribunal member said the concept Muslims in Australia could have fallen afoul of the prohibition on racial discrimination. So there's a first concern that in New South Wales we may actually have religious vilification laws, but perhaps even greater concern is that we have laws that prevent us from speaking our mind, and if we do, there's a chance we'll be penalised because a government official considers that we have acted, said something that's offensive. And the penalties are substantial. Under the Act it can be $100,000 you can be fined for that. We have problems with our immigration level, it's too excessive, so the Conservatives' view is that it should be halved. That will deal with a major, major problems we're having in Sydney and Melbourne in particular with social cohesion, with housing prices, with the difficulty in moving around our major cities, and it will allow our infrastructure to develop to catch up to our population growth. We also have significant problems in our education system. We have too many teachers in our schools and in our universities who aren't focusing on developing the knowledge of their students, their character, their, their skills. Instead, they are activists who are trying to push extreme ideologies, Marxist ideologies, very uh, experimental views about human identity, that it's, our, motion, that it's our, our emotions that determine whether we're a man or a woman. It's, it's a different matter if an adult decides to make these choices, but now young children are making these kind of choices they're being affirmed in those choices by their school teachers and others in schools. And often they're doing it in a way that's contrary to what the parents want. And often this information or the child has experiencing gender dysphoria is being hidden from the parents. So we have the pro all these problems and they're, the they're some of the issues why the Conservatives have been established. So thank you. Thank you, Greg, and I'd like to call on all the candidates to the stage to their respective seatings. Uh, the moderator of this segment will be Miranda Devine. Miranda is one of our nation's leading writers. She's a columnist with Sydney's Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Daily Telegraph. Please welcome Miranda and the team. 
thanks to all of you for coming here for uh, what's a very timely discussion with our esteemed guests, uh, as they soon will be, I suppose. Um, <laughs> maverick politicians, all of them. Uh, you might say they are part of the vanguard uh, around the world of um, uh, this sort of populist movement that is a, a reflection of the inability of uh, the major establishment parties to deal with social change. So we're delighted that you're all here. Uh, of course, on my left is Mark Latham, and then you've got David Lionhelm, Greg Walsh. So let's start, Mark, with you, with the elephant in the room. Um, I think the reason that a couple of these <laughs> television cameras are here, you know how to get in the news. Um, DNA for uh, Aboriginal welfare. Tell us about it. Well, there's a legitimate concern that um, while Australia is very generous with Indigenous welfare, it's got to be genuine. The people have to have an Indigenous identity that's uh, proven uh, to warrant the programs. And uh, any dollar wasted here is obviously bad for the taxpayers funding the programs, but it's also uh, disrespectful to genuine Indigenous um, uh, identity. And, uh, you know, it's a very common debate and problem around the country. The blonde-haired, blue-eyed Indigenous is qualifying for Indigenous programs. And uh, in other countries, such as the United States, um, they've, uh, at the instigation of the American Indian community, uh, uh, urged governments, uh, at state level in particular, to introduce DNA ancestry testing to sort out uh, who's genuine and who's not, and it's a requirement for welfare eligibility. So in Australia, um, of course, um, our system is essentially based on self-identification and anyone who follows the identity politics debate knows that the left use self-identification like a, a, a crutch, a support. You know, their whole system relies on fluidity. The whole postmodernist leftist projects on the idea that you can be a boy one day, a girl the next, you can be Indigenous one day, non-Indigenous the next. Fluidity, your fluid national borders, nothing's uh, certain, nothing's stable, science counts for nothing, biology is useless. I mean, these are the leftist dogmas. So self-identification is what they rely on. So from my perspective, promoting this policy cuts self-identification off at the knees and it, it's been a method of uh, some welfare rorting and it denies the fluidity agenda. So if you've got the science available, uh, Griffith University research team made a very important finding before Christmas. Uh, there had been a lot of money gone into DNA testing of Indigenous. It was for the purpose of moving the skeletons out of museums and burying them back at the homeland. So they've advanced the science, but now... Uh, the uh, self-identification, well, I don't want to hear about that, that there's 100% nuclear DNA matching that's been made available in Australia, it's used overseas. They want to stick with the self-identification. This is eminently sensible and eminently respectful of, it, of genuine Indigenous in genuine need, and that's why we should support it. So identity politics, um, let's go on to you, David. Um, uh, your special friend, Sarah Hanson-Young, the Green Senator, <laughs> was on Q&A last night and um, she said, first of all, that <coughs> Me Too has arrived in Canberra, in Parliament. don't know quite what that means. Um, but she and others on the panel were advocating a women's caucus across Parliament and it seemed to get widespread support in the Q&A audience. Um, <laughs> so I'm bowling you a bit of a softball here. What do you think? Do you see any problems with a women's caucus in federal parliament? Well, I don't mind anything that's voluntary. If, it's, um, if they're just women getting together and having um, a chat about things that women are interested in, I've got no concerns about that. 
Um, the, the implicit, um, or the implication, I think, is that uh, women deserve some sort of special treatment, um, that the caucus would have entitlements that uh, <coughs> men wouldn't have. That's, that's where the problem arises. Um, Sarah is uh, um, uh, very quick to claim that she speaks on behalf of women, and yet uh, many, many women have contacted me and said she doesn't speak for me. Uh, in fact, I'm not sure she even speaks for all the Greens, to be quite honest. Um, <laughs> she's, she's not all that popular in her own circles, as far as I can tell. But um, she, uh, uh, this whole identity thing means it, it's, a, it's a, uh, a degradation of your individuality. You know, Martin Luther King said in his famous speech, I want my little children to be judged by the content of their character, not by the colour of their skin. And he could have gone on to say not by their uh, gender, not by what's in their underpants. Um, you know, it, the, the fact is we are all individuals. Um, we should be treated as individuals. That's fundamental to the Liberal Democrats' philosophy of the libertarian philosophy. We are individuals. We don't acknowledge in our policies um, black and white, Aboriginal, non-Aboriginal, male and female. If you are needy, and getting back to Mark's point of view, if you are needy, doesn't matter whether you're Aboriginal or not, you're needy. If you need the safety net, our social welfare safety net, to help you out, it shouldn't matter what colour you are, what race you are, it should be there for you. And if you're not needy, you shouldn't get it just because you're Aboriginal. That's, that's not legitimate. It's individuals that matter, not, not groups. Greg Walsh, um, in Canada, this has just happened, a um, a court has ruled that a 14-year-old transgender boy <coughs> should be allowed to continue receiving hormone injections to transition from a girl to a boy, um, despite his father's objections. And furthermore, the judge said that um, if the father referred to this child uh, in the with the incorrect pronouns, that would constitute domestic violence, with the the uh, you know the criminal prosecutions that would arise from that. So. Um, how do you resolve, this is coming to Australia, parental rights and freedom of speech with transgender rights? key challenge, firstly, is to try to get on top of the science. And this issue has just come from nowhere, it seems. This was five years ago, no one was talking about it. Now it's one of the dominant social issues being discussed. And the consensus, at least that's how it's being presented, is that whenever a child develops gender dysphoria, they have to be affirmed in their decision and they have to be allowed to continue on this approach that a boy who now considers himself to be a girl has to be affirmed in the fact that they're now a girl. But there's some voices that are being raised. That there is, the science is not settled on this and we could be doing enormous harm. In Australia, one of the most prominent doctors who's raising concerns is Dr John Whitehall. I'm not sure if anyone's read anything about him, but he publishes mm. extensively in Quadrant. And the point he's making is that the evidence isn't there that the correct approach to take for children is they develop gender dysphoria, you say, okay, you're now a girl, we'll allow you to go along these ways, we'll, we'll give you puberty blockers, we'll then give you the cross-sex hormones, and that's the correct treatment. His view is that this is highly doubtful and the better approach might be to just allow the child to develop naturally, biologically, and when they go through puberty, these issues will resolve. There's many people who are actually stating publicly that when they were kids, they considered that they had this gender dysphoria problem, they wanted to be a girl, and then they just grew out of it over years. But instead, that's not the approach that's being taken anymore. Doctors seem to be too willing to provide these puberty blockers, then go to the cross-sex hormones, and it puts, down, puts someone down an incredibly dangerous route. As many of you will know, that 
is that lots of studies that show that people who are transgender have a much higher risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide. And the argument is this is happening because we're such a transphobic society. But if you look at how drastic the surgery is for transgender and how a person changes their mind, then they just have to realize they're being mutilated. It's a very good reason, very good justification for concluding the reason why it's such a high suicide rate is what's actually been done to these people. And so many are saying this should be addressed as a psychological problem. And at the very least, there should be a, a national inquiries into this so we we're definitely sure that we've got the science right. There's many scientists who are saying that they're being too, they're being intimidated by activists, that they don't feel comfortable in expressing their views on these issues because they'll be, be labelled as transphobic bigots and their job will be threatened. So it's critical that we are certain that the science is right here. And even if, and there's also the religious liberty for parental rights speech issue as well, that what's being done here is, is, seems to be a profound violation of parental rights. The fact that if a child in a school says they have gender dysphoria, then increasingly those, those schools seem to be saying, okay, we'll allow you to develop in that way, we'll support you, and if necessary, we will stop your parents from undermining that. That's the case you said was the classic example that courts, many parliamentarians are of the view <laughs> that if, you, if a parent doesn't want to see their child pretend to be a girl, then that's going to be considered to be a type of, of domestic violence, child abuse, and it seems to be a horrific thing to happen, especially when the science seems to be unclear. So we need to fight back against it. It's very hard. We should insist that there's a national inquiry so we're certain the science is right and the community are actually convinced that this is the correct way to treat children. Otherwise, we're looking at... Mark some huge issue. Mark, um, safe schools, you've been a great critic of it. Um, if you were to, uh, it looks like you will be in the upper house uh, as the One Nation uh, leader. You're voting for me. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, uh, so ha how, tell us what you would do, especially if, if uh, you are among uh, a bunch of so-called minority parties on the right who hold the balance of power in the upper house. What would you do about safe schools and this gender ideology issue? Well, it's part of the fluidity agenda of the left and just because safe schools notionally has uh, been defunded in New South Wales, it doesn't mean that uh, there's no gender fluid materials in the classroom and uh, being taught to children. It's uh, moved on to the health curriculum, uh, personal development, English curriculum, uh, books in the libraries uh, feature this stuff for children as young as six or seven. So you need a comprehensive audit of all the learning materials and uh, curricula uh, that's in New South Wales schools that rely on gender fluidity, the teaching of it, which, which is a, a shocking um, blow against the rights of parents uh, to have um, uh, our parenting skills and love and care for our children in this area. Well, have the full audit and get rid of the lot. And the other thing you need to do is end the um, policy, again, self-identification of transgender in our schools that at the moment in every New South Wales government school, uh, a person can turn, a student can turn up one day and say, I was a boy yesterday, today I'm a girl, I'm back to being a boy. So trousers dress trousers in sequence. And this self-identification system, again, the, the, the ally of the fluidity leftists, uh, needs to be cut off at the knees because a lot of teachers in practical terms have said to me, well, we know this is ridiculous, we know this is a sort of a, a prank or the, the, the kids are confused and and it's not uh, genuine in the schoolyard, uh, changing genders every second day, but we can't do anything about it because if you say anything to the kid and they go home and self-harm, that's the end of my teaching career. So base it in science. Base it in medical science and advice that you shouldn't be able to self-identify. Uh, the only way a transgender student uh, can be judged as such in the school is if with supporting advice from a medical specialist. 
Um, and that, again, is logic and based in science. So, you know, you need to bring the transgender and fluidity uh, programs under control, uh, get them out of schools and uh, have uh, an end to self-identification and also bring this back into proper scale. You know, the last census in Australia showed there were 1,300 transgender people identified, 1,300. To listen to the leftist media and, and, and this political agenda, you think there were 13 million. Right. You know, it's, it's, well, that's it's, the it's aim. Well, it's, well, it is the aim, but it's way out of proportion <laughs> to real-life Australia. And uh, the evil of safe schools, of course, is to try and take children and convince them they're confused about their identity, you're a boy, girl, straight, gay, and to feel agitated against society. This idea that it's a social construct, your identity's being held away from you, you're being oppressed, and to rise up. This is what Ros Ward, the neo-Marxist author of Safe Schools, admitted. It's a political program to get young people confused. I mean, they talk about mental health in schools. You want to make someone mentally ill, confuse a teenager about their gender. <laughs> And, and this is what's happening. It's a political, an evil political program to make young people confused, rise up and politically active in our society. Uh, to use young people this way is shameful. It shouldn't be in our schools and these matters are the preserve of the parents. <coughs> David, with 11 you days... You might have gathered I'm against it. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. David Leinhelm, um, 11 days to the state election and the polls are showing that the Berejiklian government is um, you going to struggle um, and that's the government that's balanced the books and catapulted New South Wales up, you know, to every uh, top of every economic scale. Um, seems as if the voters of New South Wales have the memories of goldfish. Um, just uh, Labor now, we've got a neophyte leader and a very hard left feminist deputy and, uh, and, and an agenda of identity politics. You're pretty astute about your political predictions. Um, what do you think will happen in the New South Wales election? And why is the Berejiklian government so on the nose? Um, politics is, has often been described as show business for ugly people. And um, what, so what, what we had... <laughs> well, no, I mean... <laughs> I, I, I don't know if what, what... What are you meaning by that? <laughs> I wasn't looking at you. No, I know, I know, but I'm, I, I think I know where you're looking. That's the problem. <laughs> um, the, the, the reality is Mike Baird had uh, media charisma. He was, uh, he was a good performer on the TV. And uh, uh, he won a big election uh, against Labor. Uh, Labor was absolutely on the nose because of corruption and uh, total mismanagement of the state. So the Libs uh, uh, did well. Then um, uh, they, they went backwards a bit, as is often the case. Um, uh, there are a lot of people out there who don't care who wins government. They'll say, oh, well, they've been in for a while. I'll give the other guys a go. Um, now what we're seeing, though, is beige against beige. Who, who cares about Gladys Berejiklian? She's got a beige personality as far as the public is concerned. Who cares about Michael Daly? It's a, it's a wonder he's actually even, you know, we know his name. Um, he's only been there five minutes and he's also very, very beige. Um, and what are they doing that distinguishes themselves from each other? Uh, neither of them is offering to cut our taxes, stamp duty and, and uh, uh, on cars and insurance and all houses, of course. Nobody's touching that. Payroll tax, nobody's touching that. 
what they're trying to do is outspend each other using our money, saying, look how good we are at spending your money, now vote for us. It's no surprise, really, that neither of them is standing out from the other. They're not really offering an alternative to each other. And, uh, uh, I, you know, I think the public is uh, cynical about them. Um, I get lots of feedback about horrible politicians who are just in it, in it for themselves is the term, in it for themselves. Um, and uh, you can't blame them, really, when you look at what's going on in New South Wales. A, 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 um, uh, the government and then goes and proves how bad they are at spending our money by um, knocking down and rebuilding stadiums. Mark, how do you see the election going? Well, I think the Liberal Party's problem is uh, self-evident in their slogan, uh, let's get it done. Well, what have you been doing for eight years right. <laughs> uh, to get things done? And uh, why have we got to do it all? Let's us get it done. Well, Putting people years. first is well, better. Well, I, I, think, I, think <laughs> I think essentially there's a cycle in New South Wales politics. When O'Farrell was elected, people said, massive majority, you'll be in there for three or four terms. I said, hang on a minute. There is a cycle here that the population growth in Sydney is so great the dysfunctionality, the congestion is so relentless that the cycle of state politics is they'll, they'll, they'll give them eight years to try and sort it out and if they haven't got a result, well, they might as well try someone else out of desperation. I mean, you wouldn't believe the deterioration in quality of life, just how hard it is to get a parking spot, to mm. drive on a road, having to stand up on the train now from Western Sydney. I mean, and, and all of these things getting worse. You know, I, I am so glad I'm running for this if not for, if only for the reason that I uncovered the plan they've got around the so-called Aerotropolis at Badgerys Creek Airport. Aerotropolis is sort of a cross between Disneyland and Joy Flights. That's what they <laughs> try and market it as. But the reality is the planning minister has put in black and white, he's got a plan to build a city the size of Adelaide, a city the size of Adelaide around Badgerys Creek Airport, and no planning for a public hospital. Adelaide's got 1.3 million people. This is additional to what we've got in Western Sydney now. And this level of dysfunctionality and the lack of planning is just totally unsustainable. So the public out of desperation turn on a mob that say we're still getting it done. In fact, nothing's been done. They haven't opened up a major project in the entire state. They can't even build a, a couple of tram tracks down the main street of George uh, of Sydney, just down the road here. So that's why the government's in, in, in trouble. The public pay on results, and I'm afraid, uh, Gladys, your results are lousy. So you're, you'll be in the upper house. Um... Only if you vote for me. <laughs> Potentially, uh, you know, part of a balance of power position. Um, you're not Clive Palmer. I mean, you won't have a mandate to block everything that whichever party gets in does in government. But what are your do or die issues? Well, stopping the legislation for a carbon-free New South Wales economy that destroys the coal industry, aluminium and most of our manufacturing and I, I suppose forces us all to buy an electric car and drives up prices and inevitably will lead to power outages in the state. This is a looming disaster. Uh, energy security and affordability is crucial. So Michael Daly's plan, you know, you can sort of manipulate the media agenda to focus on the stadium, but what he's planning to do in a carbon-free economy, I, I assume with Don Harwin cheering him on, because the Liberals don't object to it, they don't raise it as a campaign issue, but how anyone in the Hunter Valley, for instance, could be voting <laughs> Labor beggars belief, because it's an economic suicide note for that region in particular. So that's a, a crucial issue, uh, fixing up the, the, the school system. I mean, you've got system failure in New South Wales schools as they go backwards. That's crucial, doing something about uh, planning and, and urban containment in Sydney, water policy and the human rights agenda. The five I mentioned where the major parties agree, you've got to disrupt that agenda. It's, uh, the, the term in the upper house is way too long, eight years, but 
boy, there's eight years of work done there. <laughs> you know, that's the thing. And in all those areas, that's what I'll be hammering. Greg Walsh, do or die issues if you end up in a position where you can decide government legislation coming or going? So what, what are your do or die issues? What do I want to achieve? Because mm. if you don't want to be Clive Palmer and block everything. Yes. Well, some of the things that are really important to me is the religious liberty issues. So that seems to be critical at the moment. The fact that government's going to introduce legislation that will undermine so many issues that are very important. The operation of religious schools and universities. We have ongoing issues with what protection should be provided now that marriage has been redefined as a two-person institution. There were promises made when the marriage debate was happening, there'd be substantial protection for religious liberty. That didn't happen, as you recall. Turnbull just rushed through the legislation and showing contempt for the 40% of the population who voted uh, for traditional marriage. So that's a, a key issue for me. The education issue is one is that I think Mark and I agree on, that it's a major, major problem that we have so many teachers in schools and in universities that are focused on activism and extremism. And there's a, a climate of hostility, especially in our universities, where freedom of speech isn't respected anymore, which is extraordinary. We have the, the uh, inquiry going on by the former Chief Justice of the High Court, Robert French, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But I recently tried to organise a speech for myself where I went to a university to talk about freedom of speech and I, I just couldn't, maybe, maybe I didn't get invited because no one wanted to hear from me, but I, it's also a possibility, it's also far more likely, I think, is that people are intimidated to have conservatives on campus. There's one, one school I called and the professor told me that in the current climate it was just not wise or safe for him to invite for me to talk about the issue I did my doctorate on, religious schools, how they should be regulated under anti-discrimination legislation. He said it just wasn't safe, especially because it, it was a junior academic who was conservative and the view was that them inviting someone like me to talk at their school would undermine his career. So that's just one indication which I personally have mm. of the enormous problems that are in universities. So mm. fixing up our education system is critical. David, um, I'll ask you the do and die issue and then I'll um, get you also to answer the last question for <coughs> all of the panellists. You're broadly lumped together as the sort of right-wing minority parties. How uh, is your party different from the other two on the stage? Mm -hmm. Okay, so do or die issues. I'm pretty realistic about what you can achieve on the crossbench, having done it for the last five years in the Senate. And what you do need is a clear agenda, a clear list of things that, uh, that you would like to achieve. You have to be very patient. You wait until the government needs you and, and uh, when they want your vote and then you say, okay, in exchange for my vote, this is what I want. And uh, if you are realistic about what you want and you, some of our aspirations, some of Mark's and Greg's and my aspirations, uh, neither Liberal nor Labor governments will, will countenance. But if you're realistic about it, you might get them. Um, uh, the second part of your question was... Uh, what, what's different about... What's different, yeah. Liberal Democrats. So Liberal Democrats are economically um, liberal, so we believe in low taxes, low, um, low spending, leaving more money in your pocket, uh, let, you, let you run your own life. And, and how is that different from these guys? <coughs> and only having a safety net. Fairly similar to Corey. Uh, Corey and I worked together in the, in the Senate relatively uh, well on economic issues. Somewhat different from Pauline. 
Uh, Pauline's uh, not that enthusiastic about voting for uh, tax cuts. She voted against the company tax cuts, for example, and she's in favour of uh, some of the spending things which I'm opposed to. Where we differ primarily, though, is on social issues. Um, so we're a libertarian party. We don't think the government's got any right to tell you how to live your life. Um, we supported same-sex marriage, although I, I tend to agree with Greg, they messed it up. I had an amendment to um, uh, maintain religious freedom and uh, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't entertain it. You want to uh, liberalise drugs? Uh, liberalise drugs, yes. Yeah. So the prohibition policy has been run now for about 50 years and it's, it's just as much a failure as it, as it ever has been. Um, assisted suicide, uh, we don't think it's any of the business of the government to tell you uh, when and how you can end your life if that's your decision. It's your life, it's not the government's life. Um, so that probably those three issues would be the ones that would distinguish us from the social conservatives. And I know that that's where I differ from Corey. Um, I'm not entirely sure where Mark stands on those issues. I think he probably agrees with me on a few of them. Mark, what's your different point of difference from the other two? Well, I think at its core, One Nation, we're a party defending civilisational values. That uh, this uh, debate we have about uh, uh, fluidity, postmodernism, cultural Marxism, uh, there's an attack on the values of Western civilisation. And uh, uh, so many Australians think the country's headed in the wrong direction. We're losing the best of our traditions and values. And the One Nation approach is to restore the best things about Australia in free speech, uh, meritocracy, <coughs> uh, resilience, uh, love of country, uh, and to um, uh, promote as much as possible sound civilizational values in areas like religious freedom, freedom of speech, a different kind of human rights agenda, and uh, tooth and nail defend the best of our institutions, like uh, Australia Day and the fact that uh, it's a good thing for students in a school to know the words of the national anthem, to sing it with pride, to be proud of our flag, proud of our country. So all of these things are under attack because the uh, civilizational values are a, a threat to the left getting up their agenda about fluidity and postmodernism and to convince everyone that the whole world's not based on biological or scientific realities, it's, it's, it's based on uh, fluidity. So how so are you different to David? Well, we don't, we don't see uh, drug liberalisation as a civilizational value and approach. We're not pill testers. And uh, uh, in other areas, uh, we'd be worried that libertarianism can go too far, that it weakens the bonds of society. Essentially, uh, the uh, thing that we support is uh, uh, a cohesive Australian society united by values around principles mainly of merit selection, that the best person for the job gets the job, that identity politics and employment quotas are inherently divisive and indeed primitive to judge people by how they look. So, you know, we defend those values much more than libertarians who identify the individual without concern for the uh, social cohesiveness and bonds of social capital. And how do you differ from Greg? Well, Greg's got to outline his thing and then I'll tell you. But um, <laughs> <laughs> You know how you differ from Corey. No. Well, right. well, there's, 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 you know, I, I think there's probably greater commonality there um, with the conservatives, but uh, they, these are questions of degree and emphasis. So I think it's most useful if I outline what we believe in without trying to sort of create uh, a big, um, um, you know, a big uh, valley of divide between us because there's a lot of overlap. And essentially, in the politics of this, we're presenting issues, solutions, policies that you don't hear from the major parties, and that's very, very healthy for our democracy.
Greg, um, just very briefly. Okay. Yeah. Some of the key differences, so if you look at our policies, we make it explicitly clear that we consider it's essential that we recognise Australia is founded on a Judeo-Christian <coughs> heritage. We recognise that in a way that's respectful of people from different worldviews, but we have to recognise that that's a key reason why Australia and other Western countries are so much better than other countries and why there's so much immigration to Western countries, and we are insane if we <coughs> jettison that and think we can remove Judeo-Christian basis from our society without there being significant consequences. We also explicitly support traditional marriage. That's a key focus of our party, so we haven't abandoned that like many other parties have. We also have a strong focus on religious liberty. I have a strong focus. If you look at what I've been publishing over the past few years, I've had a huge focus on ensuring religious liberty is protected in Australia. I wrote a range of articles on the marriage issue predicting that the government, Labor, Liberal, National Greens weren't going to respect religious liberty, which has obviously happened. And the fourth key point I want to note is just the quality of the candidates and the politicians we have. Cory Bernardi, many of you know, has been a remarkable leader for social conservatism in Australia. He's been very courageous and quite intelligent in how he's, he's defended issues like there was a debate between him and Penny Wong on marriage. And I think if you watch that, you can see the intelligence of the individual. But also we have great candidates as well. Kevin Bailey down in Victoria, who uh, focused a lot of his career on economic issues as a financial planner. Now he's involved in religious liberty issues as well. We have Lyle Shelton in Queensland, as many of you will know, was a former director of the Australian Christian Lobby. In New South Wales at a federal level, we have Sophie York, who was one of the national leaders on trying to ensure marriage wasn't redefined. And all of these people, if you meet them, they're incredibly intelligent, very dedicated to Australia, character-driven, principle-driven, and they work well together. Great we all team. work well together Great in the cohesion. Terrific. Yep. Thanks, Greg. <clears throat> now we'll open up to questions from all of you. <clears throat> and I think Blaise Joseph has one. Thank you. Blaise Joseph, Education Research Fellow here at CIS. Um, in New South Wales and in Australia, uh, school spending has increased a lot over the past 15 years, while on literacy and numeracy international benchmarks have actually declined. Um, both major parties are, are proposing significant increases in school spending. Um, what, are your, what are your plans for improving uh, student outcomes? And also, can you comment on how you, wanna, how, you can, how you are planning to help encourage parental school choice? So if parents aren't happy with their local school, they can, um, they can receive support to go to a different school. Thank you. Mark? Uh, well, I've released a host of uh, policies in this area, but I should say, speaking at the CIS uh, on schools policy, it's uh, inappropriate not to mention the wonderful research of Jennifer Buckingham over many, many years in uh, the titan of uh, evidence-based schools policy. And, you know, even today, there's so much more work to be done because there are still failed whole-word programs in the uh, New South Wales system uh, instead of the, the, the common sense of, uh, of phonics. But look, it's a mountain of work, uh, whether you look at the curriculum, testing standards, uh, teacher quality, the questions of choice. Um, I, I could talk for half an hour. I just want to give one example in the curriculum of what's gone wrong. You know, people who've got uh, grown-up children or um, not yet having kids uh, might not realise. But in the Year 10 curriculum in New South Wales, uh, in English, <coughs> the book Wuthering Heights is described uh, for teachers as a... Uh, this used to be regarded as a well-written book uh, commenting on the intensity of uh, human relationships but should now be regarded and taught as an example of bourgeois exploitation and gender stereotyping. This is Emily Bronte's <laughs> Wuthering Heights and that's a close to verbatim account of how it's now described in the curriculum. 
You know, poor old Cathy, she thought she was coming home, but not to a house, household full of identity <laughs> politics and bourgeois exploitation. So this, this stuff is as mad as you can imagine and a pollution in the minds of young people. So, you know, you've got to start with the curriculum and, and work out and get, also get rid of the fad programs like mindfulness and, um, and um, uh, project-based learning. And in terms of administration, they've got Mark Scott heading up the education department in New South Wales. Not bad enough, he wrecked the ABC. <laughs> he thought he'd wreck our kids' education as well. And in that regard, his performance indicators are horrific. So uh, it's pretty bad. But today I'm releasing a policy on this choice question. Western Australia has had a very successful uh, uh, process of independent public schools where the parents and the community can take over the running of the school using government resources. It's such tough work uh, for parents who haven't got the money to go to private schools and they're trapped with their local uh, range of uh, neighbourhood government schools that are no good. The independent public schools in WA have been very, very successful as a, a third choice to ensure that um, they can get stuck in and, and improve the school through their own management skills, staff selection and the like. So I'm very supportive of that. It's worked in WA. Why aren't we doing it here? This gentleman here. Um, just a question about tactics. I mean, you've given us the bullets of policies, most of which I certainly agree with, but bullets need a delivery system. I've been on the fringe of minor and independent uh, candidates for some years, and the big problem is always the perception, despite what's been happening with the flow to the minor parties in recent years, the big problem is they'll never form government to enact what they've all been saying, or there's this almost an atavistic thing, oh, Liberal and Labor, they're not very good, but they're comfortable, they're big, we're part of the club, or 40 35% club of people that vote Liberal or Labor no matter what. So what's the question? So how do, you, how do you break through that perception? How do you make yourself, either you all get together as a, a major minor party, like the Greens, the DLP of the, of the uh, 2010s, etc. How do you break through that perception, oh, they can't do anything because they're not big enough? David, and, if, and if they're in the middle, we get the Italianisation of the upper house like in the federal sure. Senate. David? Yeah. Well, the fact is you can do things. You have to be realistic. And sometimes, um, uh, you know, as the old saying goes, you campaign in poetry and you, and you act in prose once you get into parliament. But, um, so it's good, but it's good to have an idea of what you're aiming for um, but as I said, if you're on the crossbench and if the government needs your vote, and those, those are the ifs, um, there will be times when Liberal and Labor are on the same side and your vote is irrelevant. But there will be plenty of times when the government will need your vote. I had that over and over and over again in the Senate. And at those, it's, it's at that time then you say, OK, um, is there a principle at stake here that, to, that drives how I vote? Or am I in a position where I can leverage my vote? And you, you dream of those days when, when the government needs your vote. Had it not been for a situation where the government needed my vote, I would have never forced the situation where uh, people will no longer get childcare subsidies once their income exceeds $350,000. That was a straight-out blackmail um, <laughs> situation. So you can make a difference. But then, of course, you have to be able to tell people that that's what you've done. And people then have to say, OK, I appreciate that and therefore I'll vote for them next time. Now, if they don't do that, well, you're not going to be able to do it again. Um, but that's politics, you know. You, it, it, you're dependent on votes. It's not just good ideas. Questions? One more question here at the front. Uh, 
Ben Graham here from news.com.au. Um, um, Dave, you've touched on this before. Um, a big issue for our readers is that they feel that New South Wales and Sydney in particular is becoming a bit of a nanny state. Um, but we have too many rules. You're not allowed to go into pubs if you have a hat on. You're not allowed disco balls, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, I'd be interested, you touched on it. Maybe maybe the panel could touch on it a little bit. Do you think that, um, you know, we've become a bit of a nanny state and uh, uh, perhaps politics is interfering in our lives too much? Well, if you look at our, our principles, there's five key principles, and the first one is limited government. So we want government to be as small as it can possibly be. Uh, the second one is personal responsibility. So we want obviously individuals to take responsibility for their own lives. So that's two out of the five of our principles, which explicitly emphasise what you're talking about. So government shouldn't be involved in our lives more than it's necessary. The starting point should always be leave it up to the individuals to decide. If they have a problem they can't fix, then leave it up to the groups that they voluntarily create to address those problems. If that can't be done, then you move it up to the next level and the next level. And you only go to the highest level of government when it's absolutely necessary. So that's the approach that we, we, we would take. And so, David, would yeah. you stop the war on music in New South Wales? Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, New South Wales is nanny state central. There's no, no question about that. Um, Why is that? The, the lockouts, for example, you're not allowed to stay out late in Sydney if you're, if you're in Melbourne, you can just go down to Melbourne if you want to. A Sydney person is trusted in Melbourne. Melbourne people are trusted to stay out late. But no, you're too naughty here in Sydney. You've got to go, you've got to go home to bed early. It's ridiculous. It's killing live music. Um, they've also got some really stupid uh, laws relating to service of alcohol. There is a bar in Sydney that serves uh, very rare whiskies, And it could be $100 a shot. But they're not allowed to serve that whiskey at $100 a shot after midnight unless it's mixed with something. <laughs> I mean, that is, that is absolute abomination. <laughs> Mixing a $100 whiskey with anything. You know. And yet that's the law. You've got to drink it before midnight, otherwise uh, you're breaking the law. Um, it's, it's just crazy. The nanny state is seriously out of control. We, do, we don't have... Um, well, in, New, in Northern Territory, just riding a bicycle helmet, for example, you only have to, ride a, uh, you only have to wear a helmet if you're on a public road. Um, in Europe, you don't have to wear a helmet at all, though sensible people put them on their children. In, an, in Australia, in, in all the states except Northern Territory, you have the cops coming after you with the blue lights and sirens if you don't have a helmet on riding a bicycle anywhere. It's ridiculous. The rest of the world doesn't agree with us either on that. And there's lots of other things where the rest of the world says, no, no, we think adults are adults and they can be left alone to, uh, to make their own choices about that sort of thing. But no, not here in Australia, not, especially not in New South Wales. Mm. Final answer from Mark, are we a nanny state? Well, absolutely, and there's bureaucratic mission creep that uh, there's a whole army of public servants in New South Wales seeking to justify their existence by inventing mm. new regulations. And whether mm. you talk about fishing lockouts or the prosecution of farmers in western New South Wales for land clearing or prosecution of people who build a dam on their property to collect their water. Uh, energy policy is another example. The more the state government interferes with the energy market, the worse the outcomes. And the lockout laws are uh, an example of how, you know, the, there's always an attempt to modify human nature and human behaviour, but ultimately uh, natural uh, human activities push through. And there's been a very good analysis of the lockout laws out of the business school at Sydney University, which says all you're doing is pushing the young people underground. Young people will go out and have fun mm. and enjoy themselves. But instead of doing it at regulated, supervised venues, 
they'll move into the underground economy, um, uh, more, you know, drugs and and uh, unlicensed venues, um, so unregulated, unsupervised, and they'll still be undertaking their activities and staying out late, but it's at the cost of uh, a, um, uh, economic uh, activity in the Sydney centre. So I don't think the lockout laws have worked, and they certainly should be relaxed. And also be mindful, it's not just Sydney, Newcastle and Wollongong have got this stuff. Uh, I'll tell a story about my eldest son who had his first uh, night, he's just gone to Wollongong Uni, and his first experience at a nightclub down there. <laughs> and uh, I said, mate, what was it like? He said, oh, geez, Dad, it was loud. I said, oh, that's a nightclub, welcome to all that. <laughs> and then he said, the other thing was at 1.30, uh, they said we had to all close down and they started uh, chanting, lockout laws suck, lockout laws suck. <laughs> These are the young people at the venue. And, it, 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 you know, another... Do uh, they have the vote? More robust words. Well, I hope yeah. so. I suppose they'll, uh, they'll get on the roll if they can. But, uh, you know, uh, people uh, uh, are not going to have their natural behaviour uh, modified by government. Uh, they want to have a bit of fun when they're young and if it's good for the economy, it should be allowed to happen, uh, you know, in a reasonable way. Well, that's a good note to end on. Thank you very much to our three guests. Please give them a round of applause. <laughs>